This is another edition of the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. The number, if you're interested, to be a part of the program is 732-364-3598 at 732-364-3598. Half of the 2018 World Series is squared away, as we know the Boston Red Sox are getting there. And congratulations for them winning uh, the pennant again, a chance to win their fourth World Series in the last 15 years, which if you talked about the more dominant teams in Major League Baseball, it's a little hard to see because so many of them have done it in little spurts here and there. And of course, you talk about the San Francisco Giants who won World Series in 2010, 2012, and 2014. But you really look at the Red Sox and maybe the Cardinals who kind of go back to getting to the World Series in 2004, winning in 2006 and 2011. And you talk about those teams are probably the most dominant. Now, obviously, the Dodgers have a chance to get to their second straight World Series. It's not going to mean very much to them. If they don't win, and I've said all along that you'd have to play some really hard odds if you're looking to bet on the Dodgers, because I think you could end up winning a lot of money by betting on the Dodgers, or if it turns out to be the Milwaukee Brewers, the Boston Red Sox are going to be very much favorited to win the World Series this year. So we'll see how it ends up turning out. A couple different things and uh, topics I'm going to get into today. Eventually, we'll talk a little bit about Floyd Mayweather. There's just one certain aspect that kind of frustrates me about boxers and sometimes their interest in continuing to do what it is that they're doing for a little bit too long. And it's not like there's a time that has to come where they have to retire or they have to give it up. But... It's, it's almost like you can't talk about a professional boxer unless they've fought one too many fights. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Clayton Kershaw the other day goes out there, throws a great performance against the Milwaukee Brewers. And obviously the one thing that has stuck out is the fact that he's struggled in the postseason. One of the best pitchers that we've ever seen. A This generation's equivalent to that of a Sandy Koufax right before our eyes. But he's certainly not Koufax when it comes to the postseason. You see it year in and year out. Clint Kershaw, big game in the postseason year after year, not getting a job done. The same could be said about David Price. David Price winning his first game last night as a starter in the postseason. He's 1-9 and nine as a starter, 3-9 and nine in his career in the postseason. So look at that pitchers that have had a ton of success in the major leagues. And when it comes down to it, they, for whatever reason, don't show up in a big game. I thought of some of the better pitchers of all time because here's really what happens. you got dominating pitchers that dominate during a regular season, and they have their moments in the postseason, but they also have moments where the league gets the best of them. You look at Roger Clemens. You look at Greg Maddox. Obviously, guys that are and should be in a Hall of Fame, and Maddox and Clemens' case based off of their track record and their career, you also look at what they did in the postseason, the fact that they got to the postseason a lot. 
and what certainly makes it different from pitchers of past generations. You want to talk about a Tom Seaver, a Steve Carlton, uh, Whitey Ford, just to throw out a couple, Bob Gibson. Those guys all had success at certain points in the postseason during their career, but they certainly didn't have the opportunity to pitch in a postseason year in and year out like the pitchers do today. So you look at Kershaw and you look at Price, and what makes what they have done up to this point, and of course, both pitchers have pitched well in their last start, and if the Dodgers live up to their end by getting to the World Series, you could potentially see a matchup of a Kershaw and a Price, almost knowing that one of those pitchers are going to have to come through in a big moment. Obviously, part of the reason why what each one of them have done by struggling in the postseason for a long period of time is the fact that they've got to do it so much. So it seems like every postseason, Clayton Kershaw, every postseason, David Price has a chance to erase the negative image that exists over how pitchers can be so dominant in a regular season and so good over the course of their careers. But when the postseason comes, they almost turn into a different pitcher. And I was looking through some numbers just to see how many pitchers got a chance to pitch in a ton of games back in the day. The Whitey Fords of the world. You want to make it contingent to Yankees because when you think of the years of 1946 to 1964, the New York Yankees were in a World Series almost every year. In fact, there was something like three or four years during that time frame where the Yankees didn't make it to the World Series. So pitchers that were on that staff, whether it was a Whitey Ford, whether it was Art Dittmar, Ralph Terry, guys like that that were on the roster year after year, got themselves chances to pitch in a lot of postseason games. But still, those numbers, as far as starts that they've had, pale in comparison to what we see nowadays. You got three rounds of the playoffs. If you want to count the wild card game as another round, there's certainly a lot of opportunity for starting pitchers in Major League Baseball to get their share of starts. The one thing that is kind of going against them, you look at what the Milwaukee Brewers are doing, they're not going very long with their starters at all. Certain teams have made certain decisions that you're only going to go two, three innings for a starting pitcher. So when you talk about those guys that had the ability to control the game, we've seen the bullpenning and the overuse and the overemphasis on going to relievers and having a stockpile of relievers kind of transcending the game as we see it today. But I look at Price and I look at Kershaw. I wrote down a couple different pitchers that... A lot of people, unless it's been told to you, unless you hear the stat from Elias Sports Bureau or it's been brought up on the particular broadcast that you happen to be watching, some pretty good pitchers that had pretty good careers didn't really have good postseason numbers. And one pitcher I wanted to look at was the great Don Newcomb. And Don Newcomb is in his 90s now, one of the great pitchers for the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 1940s and the 1950s. And he ended up having a pretty long career. He pitched all the way through 1955 when the Dodgers finally won the World Series. And again in 1956. But really put up some atrocious numbers when it came to those World Series games. He made five starts. He lost four of them. He pitched to almost a 9 ERA. Gave up 21 runs and 22 innings. Another guy that you think of when you think of the New York Mets World Series championship team of 1986, Dwight Gooden. Dwight Gooden's ERA was not that bad. It was sub-4, 3.97, but certainly wasn't what you thought of when you 
thought of the dominance of Dwight Gooden, let's say, in 1985 when he went 24-4, and a year later when he helped lead the Mets to the World Series championship, win a very good regular season. He was beat twice that year, and he was also beat another two times during the NLCS in 1988. And, of course, everybody remembers the Mike Sosha home run and the improbable victory that the Los Angeles Dodgers had over the Mets. The Mets, a team that beat them 10 out of 11 times during the regular season. But Dwight Gooden was 0-4 in his career in a postseason. And this was a guy that was a, a trillion games over 500 a guy that was certainly on path to become a Hall of Fame pitcher if it wasn't for his own addiction to cocaine and drugs. But you would have thought that maybe he would have had a little more success in the postseason. Now, the other, the next two pitchers I'm going to talk about were far from great. But it just shows that if you get enough of an opportunity to pitch in a postseason, while the cream sometimes rises to the top, the you-know-what kind of goes down to the bottom. And I look at a pitcher by the name of Aaron Seeley. And Aaron Seeley won 100-something games during his major league career, was a full-time starter. He, you would figure this is a guy that was never towards the top of a particular rotation, but got his share of postseason starts. He made seven postseason starts. He was 0-6. He pitched to an ERA that was not that bad, a 4.46. Now, for a guy that's 0-6, you figure the ERA would be a little bit higher. But it just shows that there are some pitchers that struggle when it comes to the postseason. And sometimes you just get the opinion or the feeling that Clayton Kershaw and David Price are the only pitchers in Major League Baseball history that have had a hard time in the postseason. I look at James Shields. And James Shields made it to the World Series with the Tampa Bay Rays in 2008. He's pitched several times in the postseason since. And he has got a 3-6 record with a 5.46 ERA in 11 starts. But I wanted to talk about one pitcher that both Clayton Kershaw and David Price could possibly relate themselves to. And that is Kenny Rogers. And if you look at the first part of Kenny Rogers' career, it wasn't very good. He got shelled in nine games, five as a starter and ended up putting himself in a position where he didn't look like he could handle the postseason as a starting pitcher. He had an 885 ERA, he was 0-3, a little over 20 innings. He gave up 28 earned runs. Now, the 2006 postseason comes. He's pitching at this point for the Detroit Tigers. And he ends up, over that postseason, throwing 23 scoreless innings. A game in a division series, a game in a league championship series, and a game in a World Series where, of course, the Tigers ended up losing to the St. Louis Cardinals. Throws 23 scoreless innings in a postseason that year, which is ridiculous. If you're David Price or Clayton Kershaw, and looking at, obviously, in Kershaw's case, a no-doubt Hall of Fame career, David Price still has four years left on his contract with the Boston Red Sox. I think if he could go out there and average between about 14 and 16 wins a season, make his 30 or so starts, the case could be made. We could talk about David Price's possibility about getting some consideration for the Hall of Fame. Both of those pitchers have a big target on their back every time they grab the ball when the spotlight is on. And I can imagine seeing a World Series game, but of course the Dodgers once again have to live up to their end of the bargain 
by getting to the World Series. I think it would be incredible to see a Price-Kershaw matchup. Two pitchers that really have that monkey on their back in regards to trying to get over that hump. Obviously, in Kershaw's case, very good numbers in David Price's case, but totally different pitcher when it comes to the postseason. Both of those pitchers could probably think, hey, you know, maybe they could have their Kenny Rogers moment. Maybe they can go out there in a World Series and throw seven or eight shutout innings, maybe do it twice, maybe win themselves a World Series MVP. And you never know. I mean, that, that image that exists for a little while will change once you start having better results. This copyright and telecast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and the solely for the entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or the use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com, or JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, of course, you hear that Floyd Mayweather was called out by Khabib after Khabib had that, you know, almost undisputed victory over the octagon and you know every all the positivity that you could have talked about of what happened with his victory over McGregor was overshadowed by the aftermath of you know him running into the crowd and the people attacking McGregor in a ring and the whole thing it became a sideshow it became a soap opera it honestly was a joke it looked like it was completely scripted almost took the knowledge of what you just saw by watching the fight and almost make you have doubts over whether the outcome was scripted. But, you know, Khabib obviously running his mouth in a, in a way that, you know, his mouth is running rampant, making some crazy remarks, maybe having his Mike Tyson moment. Remember some of those Mike Tyson fights at the end where he's talking about getting high and, you know, talking about how he, he broke his back. You know, all the... I, I don't know, neurological issues that happen, I guess, when somebody just gets out of a fight during his rapid, incoherent, you know, statements that in some cases didn't make any sense. He calls out Floyd Mayweather and says, hey, he wants to fight Floyd Mayweather in a ring. Floyd Mayweather obviously has all the money that he ever needs. He also has another thing that doesn't get spoken about enough. He has a 50 and zero record. He is an undefeated champion. He's a guy that has never been defeated in a ring. And I say that in so many different ways because I think it's something that in the history of professional boxing has gotten to a number of champions' head. And it seems like they continue to take fights until they finally lose. Now, of course, Rocky Marciano who ended up going 49-0 and zero before he ended up retiring, is the only undefeated boxing champion in the history of the sport. Many have won way more than 49, game, uh, 49 matches or 50 fights and have had an undefeated record for longer periods of time, but what they all have in common, they all lost at some point. Floyd Mayweather doesn't have any issue when it comes to worrying about his next meal or worrying about his kids money or his kids kids money 
He's got enough money where he could take care of generation upon generations upon generations of Mayweathers. And he could take care of them very well. He could take care of small cities. He could take all of his money, and I'm sure there's a ton of stuff that he could do with it. He's one of the more accomplished and richest athletes that exist in this entire country. So when it comes down to it, it will probably never be about Floyd Mayweather needing another paycheck. Now, he feels, if he decides to have this fight against Khabib, that he can generate himself uh, between 100 and 200 million. That's a possibility. I wouldn't roll it out. I think there's enough idiotic people out there that would pay money to watch that fight. You know, the charging, you know, the amount of money that they could charge for pay-per-view could be probably a lot more than they ever have. And you'll see a lot of people will spend the money to do it. Now, you know, boxing, you know, will probably sponsor something like that. The, you know, outside sponsors, the people that are sponsoring boxing would probably throw some money that way. So the amount of money that Floyd Mayweather is talking about, this potential fight generating, I, I can't dispute. And I don't think anybody can dispute. The question is, is it worth it for Floyd Mayweather to go in the ring again? Now, if a fight between Mayweather and Khabib goes anywhere close to what the fight between Mayweather and Conor McGregor did, Mayweather may have nothing to lose. It may be, it may be one of those situations where he's like, hey, it's going to be a matter of when Khabib gets tired and way, when he pretty much submits him. Because obviously boxing is more about endurance and staying around and staying in great shape for a long period of time. And, you know, any martial arts or UFC or MMA fighting is really all about putting all your energy in at one time and trying to submit somebody as quick as you can. So from, you know, a boxing standpoint, because it's going to be boxing, obviously Floyd Mayweather is not going to go in the octagon against Khabib or McGregor. But... You know, Floyd Mayweather may look at this and say, hey, there's a hundred or another two hundred million dollars I can generate and probably not have to do too much. Probably just have to toughen it out through the first five or six rounds when this guy's trying to knock me out. And then when he wears himself out, I'll, I'll start boxing in a seventh or eighth round. Pretty much what he did to Conor McGregor. So from from that standpoint, I, I kind of get it if he wants to generate more money. But. He doesn't really need it. This is one of the richer, you know, athletes that exist in America today. But the one thing that does stand out, and I think Floyd Mayweather at some point is going to fall victim to the same thing. And I don't know if it's an alpha male thing. I don't know if it's one of those things that exists with every boxer that, you know, most men can relate to. This, this thought that you could just do something forever until it is proven that you can't do it anymore. Floyd Mayweather has done something that very few boxers have had a chance to do, to go 50 fights without a loss. And the fact that he is willing, maybe against Khabib if he decides to pick up this fight, maybe somewhere along the line against Manny Pacquiao, one time... And it might not be against Khabib, it might not be against Pacquiao, but it's going to be against somebody that he decides to take a fight against. And it may be somebody that he believes he could beat. You know, Mike Tyson took a fight against a guy by the name of James Buster Douglas. 
And with all due respect to Buster, who obviously won the fight, Buster Douglas really didn't belong in the same ring as Mike Tyson. It was Mike Tyson's lack of preparation and lack of taking the fight seriously. And credit needs to go to James Buster Douglas for the extra training and putting himself in the best shape and probably having the fight of his life. But all it takes is to have those two variables going both against you. And Floyd Mayweather's perfect record will go away. And you think about it, once Floyd or any other undefeated fighter loses, it's like taking this piece of paper and crumbling it up. And then after you crumble it up, it's not going to be straight again. There's going to be creases in it. You can iron it. You could you know, spread it out. You could keep it unfolded. You could put stuff under it and between it and put it between something for a while. But that paper, once you crumble it up, is never going to be perfect again. And Floyd Mayweather, at some point, if he continues to take fights and doesn't stay to his retirement promise, he's going to lose. And when he loses, he's not going to be a perfect fighter anymore. Now, like I said, I don't know if this has anything to do with the potential of taking the fight with Khabib. I mean, I know the amount of money... It'll be you know good enough for Mayweather to take the fight. He could take that extra million and probably feed the poor with it. But he's going to get himself to a point where, once again, that male ego, that alpha male syndrome that a lot of men have, it's going to keep getting to his head where he's going to think about, hey, I could take this next fight. Next thing you know, he's fighting Pacquiao again. Next thing you know, he's fighting the next big-time contender. And he's going to, at some point, Take a fight that isn't going to go his way. You know, he could go up against somebody that he's ridiculously favorited against. And what happens if that person hits him with the shot in one spot where he's just can't handle it? Now, I understand Mayweather's a ridiculously good defensive fighter. is not going to put himself in a position to take the best of anybody's shot. But what happens if for one second he does? And he hits the canvas and he's out for more than 10 seconds. His whole reputation that he's built of being the perfect undefeated fighter will go down. And you keep looking at what Rocky Marciano did years ago. And just his sudden decision that he had fought his last fight and that was going to be it. He was able to deal with those you know, that message that was in his head, keep telling him, hey, should I take this fight? Should I not? The voices in his head telling him to fight the best of the best at that time, even when he probably was over the hill, probably was not what he was a series of years ago. But he decided, and of course he ended up dying, you know, early, you know, before his time. But he's going to go down as the only undefeated champion in the history of boxing. And Floyd Mayweather has a chance to have one more fights without a loss and to also go into history books as an undefeated fighter. But I tell you, every time he takes a fight, like I said, even if it's against an MMA fighter, you're taking a risk. They're going to have that first loss. And that first loss might as well be 10 losses. You know, you look at the great Julio Cesar Chavez. How many fights he had before he ever lost. Larry Holmes, the amount of fights that he had before he ever lost. Muhammad Ali, any of the great fighters. 
all of a sudden, once they lost, it didn't matter anymore. You know, that one loss might as well have been eight losses, might as well have been 10 losses, might as well have been 99 losses like the great, the great Glass Joe from Mike Tyson's punch out. Moving on, want to remind everybody that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beechwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find at no beer at any cost. So I was following the story that came out the other day that the NBA is looking to try to solve this issue that exists with players that go to college for one year. And the unfortunate thing about that is they go to college for one year and their expectations are is they're going to go right into the NBA and they probably don't even need college. And the rules that are set up as they exist, that they force every player, whether it's a high school basketball player, whether it's just a really talented athlete that could play basketball to go to college for one year. Now, there's good, there's positive things in that. I think you're, you know, encouraging people to get an education. But what does that mean for those that just are not scholars or just may not have the intention of wanting to, you know, get a further education after high school? Some people may struggle for all types of different reasons. Sometimes people are just not smart enough. Other times people have different things that go on in their lives, which keep them from putting in the time that they need to study to make their grades. There's people that grow up poor. They just can't wait to get to a, a moment where they could start working and earning an income to take care of their families. So you understand that in many cases, these highly recruited college athletes, and in this case, we're talking about basketball players, will get that full scholarship, won't have to pay any money to go to college. And, you know, somebody could say, hey, they're getting a free ed education. Well, what if in some cases they're not ready for it? What if just from an expectation standpoint, they haven't spent enough time learning the things they need to learn to be able to have success in a college environment, to be able to take college classes? Now, the NBA is looking to do something with the G League to allow high school players that do not want to go to college or, you know, some athletes that are highly recruited that just aren't going to go to college just because the NBA says you got to go to college for one year. You, you can't go into the NBA as an 18-year-old. So... I think it's a good thing to give them a certain income. You could get $150,000 a year. And I think it takes away really nothing because you, the, the fact that athletes are forced to go to college, I think it's keeping people from wasting their time. It's keeping major colleges from wasting their time bringing athletes in there that are essentially embarrassing the looks of their academic programs. Colleges, and I understand there's going to be a hard line that's in the middle here between college, you know, the education you get from the college and how it applies to somebody's everyday life and the thousands and thousands of college students that exist at any major university. And the other 
what in some cases is a sideshow, the athletic part, because the athletic the athletes that are going to those schools are the ones that are generating a ridiculous amount of income. And obviously, you know where I'm getting to here. At some point, there has to be some sort of a, an agreement that college athletes, particularly basketball players and football players, should be compensated for the revenue that they're bringing into their particular schools. Now, you, you want to say a lot of these players are getting paid behind the scenes regardless? Maybe they're, you know, the boosters are working to a point where they're not getting identified. And they know if they do get identified, if the players are being identified as receiving payments, that not only are those players probably going to be removed from their particular rosters and the athletic teams that they support, but those athletic teams themselves are going to get themselves into some serious trouble over a long period of time. So, you know, you understand that players are getting paid in college sports. Now, the question is, should you pay them at least some sort of, I don't know, a dividend or a little bit of a reward? I mean, if they're, if they're the reason why there is, you know, 80,000 people that are selling out a particular stadium because they want to watch this one Heisman Trophy candidate running back or quarterback, or this point guard is going out there, you know, putting up ridiculous numbers, looking like they're the next Jerry West, or Michael Jordan, they're making sure that there's attention drawn to their schools. They're getting, you know, national attention through television and radio and the internet. There should be something worked out to where a percentage of that should go to the players. Now, I don't think every player should be paid. And that's where it may cause a little bit of a problem. You know, you may say, hey, if you're going to pay one player, you might as well pay them all. Well, there's certain players that probably don't deserve to receive a dime. Now, I do believe in a world that we live in, the technology that we got right now, the fact that we could use, you know, theorems and formulas and all different things to figure out all different types of silly stats in all these different sports something should be put together where we could figure out the percentage of an increase in the revenue to an individual college or university that one individual athlete can bring to the table. And if it's a series of them, it's let's say Michigan and the Fab Five, and you know it, it's, it's a good balance of those five players, then that's something that should be figured out in a stat. And we got the technology, so let's figure it out. Once again, this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. So the last thing we're going to do today is our NFL picks. And um, if you got a chance to look, I shared it on social media earlier. I updated my website. I put my picks up and announced this week that I'm going to go with all dogs with my picks this week. And where we sit for a record, obviously, it's not very flattering. 12 of ridiculous, what's it, 10, 18, and 2 record with the two uh, pushes. There's only two possibilities for pushes in the games that I picked this week, so we'll get it started right away. First game I'm going to take, you got the Miami Dolphins, who are, ro- uh, who are home dogs with the Detroit Lions favored by 3. Now, 
maybe the reason that the Lions are favored is because maybe, especially from a defensive standpoint, the Lions have been a little bit better than we would have thought. Ryan Tannehill is out again for the Miami Dolphins. Dolphins had a great performance with Brock Osweiler as their quarterback last week, but it does need to be noted that Osweiler benefited from a lot of yards after the catch. He completed a lot of short passes, but got the benefit of a lot of long runs, a lot of elongated plays that were that happened after the ball was caught within a short distance. So do I think Osweiler will go out there and have a ridiculous performance again this week? No. But I do think the Miami Dolphins were able to kind of come together with a big win last week. A game that they were probably not expected to win against the Chicago Bears. The Bears were, were favorited, probably would have been favorited anyway, even if Tannehill was the quarterback. But I do think the Dolphins, who got off to obviously a very good start winning their first three games, are at a moment where they're looking to say, hey, is this season worth playing on for? Are they going to make a run and potentially be a playoff team? I think this game at home is very important for them. And I think they could come up with a big performance and beat Detroit. I like the fact that they're getting three points at home. I do think that there is some, uh, at least from the gambler standpoint, a little bit of disrespect and maybe a little bit of lack of trust in Osweiler making a second straight start. But I'm going to go with Miami plus three at home against the Detroit Lions. Second game I'm going to pick is the Cleveland Browns and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And Tampa Bay obviously had a good performance last week. They very well could have won that game against Atlanta, coming down to the last drive, getting 390-something yards of passing from Jameis Winston as he has reproclaimed the starting quarterback job for that team. Uh, you've got a situation where you know that Tampa Bay, one of their bugaboos this year has been their – They've just given up a lot of points week in and week out. And it doesn't really matter who you are. You're going to be able to score points on. Now, Tampa Bay has been able to counter that with the chance to score a lot of points of their own. And I think of the improved Cleveland Browns defense, which at some points has looked okay this year. Other points, they've been just as bad as anybody else, giving up a lot of points. But I look at the Browns, and I think they can upset the Tampa Bay Buccaneers here. I think is a situation where you, if you match up the two defenses against each other, I don't know. I think the Browns' defense is a little less bad than the Buccaneers. Now the question is, is Baker Mayfield in that offense? Of course, they just traded Carlos Hyde, so it looks like Chubb's going to get a chance to Nick Chubb's going to get a chance to get a bulk of the carries in regards to their offense. Now, if it comes down to a slugfest, maybe I would favor Tampa Bay a little bit. But I do think the Cleveland defense can keep this Tampa Bay team down. And I like the Browns on the road in an upset. So give me Cleveland plus three and a half at Tampa Bay. Game number three. The Dallas Cowboys had probably one of the more improbable performances last week. Going up against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now I looked at it. The Jaguars got one of the best defenses in the entire National Football League. The Dallas Cowboys, from an offensive standpoint, haven't looked like they've been able to get past anybody. They've had some bad performances in a series of games over the course of the season. So you put that matchup together, and what do you get? Of course, a Dallas Cowboy blowout 
against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, I actually think this was a little bit of a coming out party for Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboy offense. This was a chance to see Dak kind of do some of the things that he did a couple of years ago when he replaced Tony Romo when Romo was injured. He was able to find time in the pocket, made some respectable throws, but also used his legs when there wasn't something open. So I'm wondering if he could duplicate this playing against the Washington Redskins team, which I've said all year long that whenever you expect the Redskins to lose, they win. I think this will be a tight game, but I like the fact that the Redskins are favored by only a point. So you're looking at pretty much a pick em. And I like the Cowboys coming off of their performance last week against Jacksonville, and I think they can beat their in-division rival, the Redskins. So give me Dallas plus one at Washington. Game number four. I think about the New Orleans Saints, and unfortunately, if you follow this team all year, and you talk about the improvements that they've made on defense, and I look at the Saints, and I'm like, this is the same old Saints. This is a team that's going to score 30 to 40 points a game, but also is going to give up 30 to 40 points each game. Now, the Baltimore Ravens, on the other hand, have one thing that's going well for them. And that's the performance of their defense. They're not getting a lot offensively. They're coming off a game last week against Tennessee where they had 11 sacks. They actually had one more sack than completions they allowed to the Tennessee Titans and Marcus Mariota. Now, I think you could talk about Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys maybe having a letdown. You could talk about the Baltimore Ravens continuing to build off of their great defense that they showed last week. But I'm taking the fact that I don't think the Ravens will have that good of a performance on their defense this week. I don't think they're going to be able to get to the quarterback as often as they did last week against Tennessee. And I think Drew Brees is going to be able to navigate himself where he could complete a series of short passes. He obviously has the two-headed monster in regards to the running backs with Kamara and, and Mark Ingram. And I think they're going to cause some matchup problems. And when it comes down to it, if the Saints are scoring points, you need to be scoring points to keep up. And I don't trust that Baltimore offense to be able to score as many points as the New Orleans Saints. So give me New Orleans plus two and a half at Baltimore. So the last game I'm going to pick is a very interesting game because you have a team that has been great for a series of years and everybody knows who they are in the New England Patriots. And an up-and-coming young team in Chicago, which is known for having the greatest, the best defensive player in the entire sport right now, in Khalil Mack. And my thought process with this is the fact that the Chicago Bears are playing this game at home. And I think the Bears will devise enough of a scheme to be able to get Khalil Mack and some of the other Bears linemen and into the backfield and cause some havoc for Tom Brady. And because of that, I like the Bears winning this game at home. The Bears are getting two and a half points at home. And I think if they can have a good defensive effort and put themselves in a position where this game is close, I think they could win this game by three points or so. They may not blow out the New England Patriots. I certainly don't think that they're a better team 
I think the Patriots are going to the playoffs this year, obviously, and the Bears may have a hard time getting there. They may need to go on a certain run if they want to get one of those last couple seeds and a wild card spots in a National Football Conference. So I like the Bears at an upset at home, given two and a half against New England. So picks are up on JohnPLA.com. You got Miami plus three at home against Detroit. Cleveland plus three and a half at Tampa Bay. Dallas plus one at Washington. New Orleans plus two and a half at Baltimore. And Chicago plus two and a half at home against New England. A little bit of recap of the show today. Talked about some of the pitchers that have had the worst struggles in postseason history. And in regards to David Price and Clayton Kershaw, they may want to look at the 2006 postseason of Kenny Rogers. A guy who up to that point did nothing but get shelled in postseason performances with the Yankees and the Mets. But in 2006, he had his moment and threw 23 scoreless innings in a postseason. So maybe Kershaw... And Price can think about that. And obviously the thought <coughs> excuse me, of Price and Kershaw matching up in one of the games in the World Series against each other, I think it's something worth watching. Now, Floyd Mayweather, is he going to take this fight against Khabib or not? Eventually he might take a fight against Manny Pacquiao. But I'm telling you, the more that he can't keep himself from getting in the ring is going to lead himself to his first loss. And if Floyd, one of the, I think the most special things that Floyd Mayweather has going for him is the fact that he is undefeated. And he is the longest serving undefeated champion in the history of professional boxing with his 50 wins. The more fights he takes, no matter how much of a sure thing he may believe it is, he's down to get that loss. And once he loses, he might as well have lost 10 fights. You got the situation with college athletes. Should they get paid? Should they not get paid? Um, the NBA is going to set something up with their G League and potentially give college athletes a chance or high school athletes a chance if they don't want to go to college to play for a year in a G League. Now, the one thing that I didn't mention before and I think is a very valuable point is the fact that, you know, Let's say there's the next Kevin Garnett. Let's say there's the next LeBron James. How does the NBA and its G League affiliate determine what team should get said player? If you want to say these players regardless got to play in the G League or got to play a year in college before they're eligible for the NBA, who gets the preference for their particular G League team to have a certain player? Is there any sort of draft involved? These are all things that got to get ironed out before this thing could be made serious. NFL picks, they're up on JohnPielli.com. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Thank everybody for tuning in. Hope you have a good weekend. Enjoy the World Series. Enjoy the NFL this week. NHL is obviously off to a good start. You have about five or six teams with, uh, with one loss right now. The NBA has started. So hope everybody has a good weekend. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.